Hello, X. Hi, X. Hello, X. Um, Hello, X. I hope you're doing good. Uh, I hope that we didn't screw up the Earth yeah, too much. I want to apologize for this Hello, X. And hello, everyone. And welcome back to the Hello, X podcast. I'm Christine Sin. Annalise Steuberg is working on another episode. This episode is part one of a two-part series on virtual nature. If you want to hear our guests speaking Norwegian with no English overdub, there is a bonus version in the feed just for you. Onwards, onwards, 50 years ahead to 2068. Today's episode comes from an idea being developed by the HelloX writing team. They've proposed a virtual reality version of nature that's very popular in 2068. This virtual nature includes memories of outdoor places from the past. Places that might look and sound different in your time, X, than they do in ours. How many birds will you see in the sky in 50 years? Will you see the same birds we see today? While many plants, animals, and insects are currently in decline, we have taken a special interest in coastal birds, both because they are good indicators of the health of marine ecosystems and because seabirds symbolize life between sea and land here in the Arctic and beyond. In the last episode, we spoke with Zoe Burr about how the puffins she studies are struggling to keep their chicks alive. Today we speak with two specialists in seabirds from the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. In part two of Virtual Nature, releasing in just one week, we'll hear a conversation from North Norwegian novelist Sigbjörn Skoden and game designer Ismet Bakhtiar from our creative team on the meaning and origin of virtual nature in the ex-fiction world. My name is Jan Ove Bustnes. I've been working for the Norwegian Institute of Nature Research for nearly 27 years with a primary focus on seabirds. Jan Ove specializes in ecotoxicology and works within the Fram flagship program on hazardous waste. My name is Tone Reyertsen. I work for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. I've not worked as long as Janova, but I worked with seabirds for some 10, 11 years now. Tone Reyertsen is a contributing researcher to the Fram flagship on effects of climate change on coastal ecology in the north. In the 80s, Janovis started his career studying birds on Björnøya, or Bear Island, in the Barents Sea. Bear Island was fantastic in the 80s. I was a young student. I'd been in other seabird colonies, but Bear Island was overwhelming. Masses of birds, especially the common and polar guillemot. It's difficult to imagine how many birds were there. 
En ö är väldigt få öar i Barents. There are very few islands in the Barents Sea, so the whole island can be used for nesting. Samtidigt som det är väldigt god mat för. And the food supply is very good around Bear Island. Let's take a moment to unpack the facts. About the birds on Bear Island. If you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you'll know that Norway has an award-winning coast with quote lovely crinkly edges and over 50,000 islands. Bear Island is the southernmost island in the Norwegian Svalbard archipelago. You might remember Rust, the island in Lofoten where Zoe Burr studies puffins from the Clown of the Sea episode. Rust is in the transition zone between warmer southern oceans or boreal seas and the colder arctic waters of the Barents Sea further north. On the map, Bear Island looks really isolated, sitting alone in the Barents Sea some 235 kilometers away from the main island of Svalbard and nearly as far away from the North Norwegian coast. Bear Island became a nature reserve in 2002 because it provides nesting grounds for tens of thousands of seabirds. Like the thick-billed guillemot, black-legged kittiwakes, common guillemots, black guillemots, little alks, purple sandpipers, red pink-footed geese, geese, and long-tailed ducks. And why are there so many seabirds on Bear Island? Many of the birds come to raise their chicks on the dramatic cliffs of the island's southern coast. These towering cliffs protect baby birds from predators like foxes. And they often have strong winds that can help the birds take flight. Very convenient. And you might be wondering, how many bears live on Bear Island? The answer is none. In the past, some polar bears used sea ice to reach the island. But with Arctic sea ice rapidly retreating, any bear that makes it to Bear Island becomes an instant news item. Why didn't they name the island Bird Island? Actually, that was the original name given by Dutch explorer Willem Barents when he first sighted the island over 400 years ago. But it was later changed when someone saw a bear swimming nearby. One bear versus tens of thousands of birds. Well, go figure. Let's get back to Jan Ove on Bear Island in the mid-80s when suddenly the bird populations crashed. It was sad. The very next year, the bird populations in the Barents Sea collapsed. There were far fewer birds after 1986. There was a capelin crisis in 1986-87. It caused the seal invasion on the Norwegian coast. And all the seabird populations collapsed, especially the guillemot. For Arctic biologists around the Barents Sea, 1986-1987 was an important and difficult time. Norwegian cod fishermen were finding seals in their nets instead of cod, and seals were actually climbing out of the water onto beaches, roads, and farms along the North Norwegian coast. Later, it was discovered that the cause was a crash in the number of capelin, a small silver fish on which many animals, including humans, rely on for food. 
You might recall how Greenlandic hunters told stories about Capelin in episode one, Who is X? Capelin populations are sensitive to overfishing and to water temperature and are closely monitored by scientists. The Capelin crisis of 1986 created a ripple effect across the Arctic marine ecosystem and is a perfect example of how every living being is interconnected in a dynamic biological system. For seabirds, the Capelin crisis was devastating. Guillemots that Janove saw as a student on Bear Island went from 245,000 pairs to only 36,000 pairs. The Guillemot is now listed as critically endangered on the Norwegian Red List. The common Guillemot is in the Auk family of seabirds, along with the Puffin. Auks have a relatively long lifespan of around 20 years, slow reproductive cycles, and are generally restricted to cooler northern waters. They use their wings to fly underwater. Typically, the common guillemot can dive between 20 and 50 meters deep, but has been recorded diving as deep as 180 meters or 590 feet, which is pretty incredible. Guillemots are also fast in the air, with a flight speed of 80 kilometers per hour or 50 miles per hour. The common guillemot has a black head and white belly and looks a lot like penguins from the Antarctic region. In fact, the great auk, or the Norwegian dodo, was also called a penguin before it was hunted to extinction. Ice Nine artist Valentin Mans made a collage artwork using the great auk, or Geirfull in Norwegian, which you can see on the episode webpage, along with a link to a video of the guillemot flying underwater. Because birds are at the top of the marine ecosystem, any changes in the food supply, from algae to small fish like the capelin, will have dramatic effects on seabirds. Seabirds are increasingly being recognized in the scientific community as indicators of marine ecosystem health. The more we understand seabirds, the more we understand about the entire marine ecosystem. So when many seabird populations are declining at the same time, this is a big red flag that something is changing in the sea. For the most common cliff-dwelling seabirds like auks and seagulls, the picture is complex. Not all species and not all the populations are going down. There are many birds on the Norwegian red list that are threatened in one way or another. While Tonis studies a number of Arctic seabirds, she has a particular fascination for the guillemot. She observes them up close, week after week. She says she learns a lot through this intimate contact, especially when the young birds decide it's time to leave home. Every summer, thousands of young birds jump at the same time. The kids jump off the cliffs before they are able to fly. They leave the safety of their nests and jump off the cliff where they could get hurt on the rocks or be eaten by birds of prey. It's pretty magical when it's raining birds. 
these evil Knievel guillemots may have no fear of flying, but the regional population has yet to recover from the Capelin crisis of 1986. The guillemot is critically endangered in Norway. It means there's a real risk of extinction here. Fortunately, we've seen a positive trend in the last decade, especially in northern Norway. Recent research by Tone and her colleagues show that guillemots in northern Norway might be indirectly benefiting from climate change through a local increase in one of their favorite foods, juvenile cod. These young codfish are moving north as waters further south get uncomfortably warm. If conditions remain the same, it looks promising, but it's fragile. And it can tip over and go very badly. It's extremely complex. For Janove Business, it's the eider duck, or arfull in Norwegian, that's captured his imagination for 27 years. Eider ducks are large diving ducks that breed in the circumpolar Arctic. The arfull, as they're called in Norwegian, are classified as nearly threatened on the Norwegian red list. The males can be identified from far away due to their flashy black and white breeding plumage, which, when I asked Valentin, reminded him of Karl Lagerfeld, uh, with a bit of green blush on. I know next to nothing about high fashion, but to me, the females wear a more understated range of Burberry browns. In earlier times, eider ducks and humans lived symbiotically. Communities in northern Norway would protect the ducks in order to harvest eider down from their used nests. Nowadays, most of the feathers in your puffy winter jacket probably come from commercially farmed geese. Here's a little fun fact. Eider ducks have really strong stomach muscles to crush all the shells in the shellfish that they eat. Which reminds me of that guy who ate an airplane on TV when I was a kid. So the eider ducks have these incredible stomach muscles that can crush these shells. But it takes a lot of energy. And like the capelin, those little silverfish, mussels and other shellfish are also affected by climate change. The thing is, eider duck mothers cannot afford to eat bad food. The special thing about eider ducks is that the mother birds do not eat while incubating their eggs. A bird must build up fat reserves before she lays her eggs. So, eider duck mothers are extreme moms. They don't nest on cliffs, so in order to protect their eggs, they just sit there for three and a half weeks without eating at all. In this process, they lose 30 to 40% of their body mass until they're literally skin and bones. To survive, an eider duck eats its own weight in shellfish a day. 
That's two kilos a day. Kan anta att frukt har en effekt på sådana arter? What one can assume and what we fear is that climate change is affecting these species. Den maten de spiser. The food they eat, mussels and sea urchins. Det är väldigt mycket skall. There's a lot of shell and not so much food. There's very little sustenance. Rytmen till... The rhythm of the muscles is changing. They spawn earlier. If the mother duck doesn't get enough to eat before laying her eggs, she might not be able to breed successfully. You could even say she can starve on a full stomach if the food is of bad quality. And why might the fate of these birds matter to anyone besides scientists and bird watchers? How is their fate entwined with the future of X in 50 years? Earlier, we spoke about seabirds as translators for the oceans of the world. In 50 years, it's possible that a large amount of our food will come from aquaculture, which biologists Elena Haltunen spoke about in What's Eating You, Part 2. There has never been a more urgent time to pay attention to what these birds are telling us about climate change and life in the sea. For seabirds in general, climate is one of the main reasons for the decline in certain populations. It's indirect. The sea is warming and this changes the availability of the fish they eat. The fish move to other areas or they're swimming deeper in the water. If a species like the kittiwake is on the brink of extinction, it's not extinct yet, but it's dramatically decreasing in number. It's a strong signal that the allocation of food resources in the sea has changed. More than any bird that raises eyebrows among scientists here in the Arctic, the kittiwake, or kryhja in Norwegian, is the one that seems to worry everyone. Kittiwakes are gentle-looking small seagulls that nest on steep cliffs and increasingly on buildings and other man-made structures. The name comes from the calls they make. Kittiwake, kittiwake. I worked in Hunaya for around 12 years. When I arrived, there were 10,000 breeding pairs, an enormous number. When I arrived at Birdcliff, it was very loud, like a white wall of noise. Lately, it's very quiet. It's not entirely silent in Hornaya, luckily. But at other nesting sites, it's silent. The kittiwakes are gone. In Norway, the kittiwakes are now considered extremely threatened. And globally, they've now reached the status of vulnerable on the IUCN Red List with a population decline of over 40% in the last 35 years. In Scotland, one breeding population has declined by 96%.
So far, we've discussed how the problems of seabirds can provide vital insights to the greater marine ecosystem. Seabirds are the translators of the health of our seas in the Arctic and beyond. What other value might we find in seabirds? Economically, seabirds may only be valued as a tourist attraction. People can come to Norway and watch seabirds. But it's difficult to define their economic value, to quantify it. For people who live on the coast, seabirds have an important emotional value. Yeah, I agree. It shows how full of life our coast is. It becomes a more emotional value. I feel it's sad if we lose certain types of seabirds along the Norwegian coast. For instance, if the kittiwake were to disappear, that would be very sad. I've been to these conferences where it's just depressive. You leave with the thought, is there a point to it? Should I find a new career? But at the same time, you become a kind of detective. For certain species, we're running out of time. But we must not lose hope. We have to think, is there something we can do? When one has been interested in birds since childhood, that's special. There aren't very many of us. When it becomes a profession, it quickly becomes about numbers and statistics. You can lose that feeling of fascination. It's coming back for me now, after many years. I feel joy when I see the birds and the colors. It makes me happy. As we close part one of Virtual Nature, we'd like to ask, will these bird cliffs and colonies full of sound and life be experienced mainly through virtual reality in the future? What kind of substitute is virtual reality for the value of these places and beings today? Should we be gathering images and memories of Arctic islands with names like bear and horn and voice to commemorate the ancient nesting sites of the Guillemot, Eiderduck, and the Kittiwake? What about culture? Will cultural elements and connections be lost when the birds are silenced? Stay tuned for part two of Virtual Nature coming very soon to speak with novelist Sigbjörn Skoden and game designer Ismet Bakhtiar about the genesis and meaning of virtual nature in the X-Fiction stories. Find links to an animated film we made with kids about the kitty wake and much more on the episode webpage. Special thanks to Tone Reertsen and Jan Business and all the people seeking to translate what the translators of the sea are telling us. We want to hear from you about the places you'd like to upload for your future grandkids or anyone in X's generation to experience in virtual nature. 
please email us a voice memo from your phone at hellox at ice-9.no. That's hellox at ice-9.no. This episode of Hello X was co-produced with FROM, the High North Research Center for Climate and the Environment, with its flagships, Environmental Impact of Industrial Development in the North, Effects of Climate Change on Sea and Coastal Ecology in the North, Sea Ice in the Arctic Ocean, Technology and Agreements, Hazardous Substances, Effects of Climate Change on Terrestrial Ecosystems, Landscapes, Society, and Indigenous Peoples and made with the support of the Norwegian Arts Council. ICE-9 partners include Tromsø Municipality, the Nansen Legacy Research Project, and the North Norwegian Art Museum. Hello X theme music by Metatag on Hell Audio, and episode music by Theda, specially composed for this episode, Susan Tuck, and by artists contributing to the Piper Colobocentridis Purple-Tipped Echinometra Plinthocelium, a not applicable compilation, including tracks by Leverton Fox, Alex Bonney, Isambard Kristalyov, Tolga Tuzun, Tangents, Lothar Olmeyer, Ben, and Zamyatin. Hello X is supported by Spotterbank, Northern Norway, the Free Speech Foundation, Innovation Norway, and Koro Public Art Norway. Hello X is produced by Ice9 with Christine Sin, Annelies Dieberg, and Valentin Mans. Associate producers include Marina Boravaya and Annika Vistrom. Natural Science and Social Science Advisor Anne Eileen Leonard. Sound mix by Nathaniel Gustin. Digital design by Ismet Bakhtiar. Story generator developed by Ferkel Industries. And we leave you with Fear of Mapping, Maurizio Ravelico's left-handed marching army version by the ever-popular Fium Shark on Not Applicable. <laughs>